Good morning. Will you please read with me Joshua 1, 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. All right. Well, if you brought a Bible with you, feel free to open to Joshua 1, where we're going to be today, and pull the sermon outline out uh, from your bulletin. There's also in there a, uh, a sheet that helps you follow along with us as we read through the Bible this year. I hope you've had a chance to participate in that. Um, If you're just new to Grace, uh, just a quick word of explanation. So we've been going through this, uh, for in honor of our 75th year, we've been going through the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation over the course of the year and asking you guys to read either uh, a a larger section or a smaller section, depending on sort of what you're wanting to take on and what you're able to commit to in preparation for each week. And then we cover that passage in the sermon each Sunday to help us as a church practice reading and spend time with God on our own throughout the week and and again the big picture of what God has done throughout biblical history. So this week we're in Joshua. It's the beginning of what's known as the history books in the Old Testament. The first five books are called the Pentateuch or sometimes called the books of Moses. That's uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We finished those. We're now moving on to the history books. So if you're behind, maybe you're on Genesis 3 right now um, and you're you're a little behind, right? This is a good time to, to just to, to say, I'm going to come back to that in the future, but I'm going to pick up with the church as a whole right now. We're, in, we're going to start in Judges 1 tomorrow. Um, it's a good time for you to, to jump in on the history books. Some people find these a little more readable uh, than some parts of the Old Testament, so it's a good time to, to get some rhythm going. hope you'll join us in Judges this coming week. So uh, that's sort of where we are as a whole. Joshua, the book we're going to talk about this morning, uh, is the first book after Moses dies. Moses is a hugely important figure in the Old Testament, and Joshua is the guy who gets to follow him. And the message of Joshua over and over is to be strong, to be strong and courageous. And I wonder how many messages about strength you guys are bringing with you from the culture this morning. How many times have you been told, either explicitly or implicitly, that you should be strong this week? Maybe you've been told that you need to be physically strong. Uh, You've seen ads on TV or athletes on on, uh, on games you've watched and thought, you know, I'm supposed to be like that. That's what my body is supposed to do. Or at the very least, you thought, like, I'm not supposed to 
be unable to walk or unable uh, to, to walk without a limp. You, you've carried this message with you that you should be able to be physically strong. Maybe some of you have carried the message that you need to be emotionally strong. You know, you need to hold it together. You can't cry at work. You need to be emotionally strong. Uh, you, can't, you certainly can't ugly cry. You know, you need to be able to hold it together, and you need to have emotional strength. Um, maybe some of you have received the message this week that you need to be um, mentally strong, you know, that you need to have an answer. You need to always be doing well in school. You need to be able to always have read that article that people are talking about. You need to have, uh, be smarter than the people around you. Maybe you've heard the message that you need to be mentally strong. Maybe you've heard the message you need to be financially strong. You need to be able to buy all the things that people around you are buying. You need to be able to have the experiences that people around you are having and do it without going into debt. You need to be able to pick up the tab if you're a real man at dinner, right? You need to, you need to be financially strong. And those things all put together, especially if we want to add on being spiritually strong and never falling behind in the year of the Bible, um, those can be an oppressive weight that we put on our shoulders to always think that we need to have all the strength to carry out everything that other people could have expectations on us for can feel like an oppressive yoke. And if we bring into Joshua the expectation that this is just one more message the world puts on us that we're expected to be strong, it can feel like an overwhelming burden to carry. When we read God tell Joshua, be strong and courageous, if we assume it's, well, we're just going to have to pull that up from within us, it can be an oppressive yoke to put on our shoulders. And yet Joshua's description of strength, both where it comes from, how we obtain it, and how we uh, hold on to it, all come from a very different place than what the world suggests. You know, the world tells us that strength needs to come from within. That's essentially the message of every Disney movie, right? You had it in you all along, right? <laughs> and yet the Bible's message about strength is very different. Not that we had it in us all along, but that strength, real strength, meaningful strength, comes from God. And that he always gives us the strength that is necessary for us to carry out what he requires of us. Joshua is going to be given an overwhelming task, an impossible legacy to follow, and uh, an unruly people to lead. And so he's told to be strong and courageous. But as we're going to see in the message today in Joshua 1, that strength isn't expected to come from within him, but it comes from God himself. So we're going to look at the jo in Joshua 1 into three parts. The first one is where Joshua's strength comes from. The second part is uh, who his strength benefits. And then the third part is what is the limit of Joshua's strength. Where his strength come from, where his strength comes from, the reason his strength matters, and what's the limit of his strength. Well, where does his strength come from? It comes from knowing God. Uh, look at Joshua uh, 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land I'm giving them, to the people of Israel. Can you imagine what it would have been like to follow Moses? For the last 40 years, Moses has been the spiritual, economic, political, and military leader of Israel. He's the one people have turned to in the final, as the final authority in every matter of their country. He's been their George Washington, their Nelson Mandela, their Plato, their Billy Graham, sort of all rolled into one. And now Joshua begins with, Moses, the servant of the Lord, is dead. And what's Joshua's title? He gets to be Moses' assistant. <laughs> That's how the, the book is written, is named after him, and yet he's introduced as someone else's assistant, right? 
How is he going to have the strength to do what Moses could not do? How is he going to go further than the one who taught him everything he knew? How is he going to have the strength to carry out what God has assigned to him? Usually when a people loses a great leader like Moses, they recede into the background. They don't go further than they've ever gone before. How is Joshua possibly going to accomplish things that Moses never did? And the answer is in verse 3. It's because God is the one who gives strength. Look at verse 3. Every place the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And then this is an important line. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua is strong. He's as strong as Moses because they serve the same God. And Joshua is strong when he walks with that God. The reason Israel can thrive without its great leader is because its great leader was never a person, but God himself. It's not to downplay the task that's in front of Joshua. It's going to require a tremendous amount of strength and courage for him to be able to lead Israel, but it's strength that doesn't come from within. Right? The strength is a strength of faith, not a strength of action. It's a strength of commitment to God, not a strength of capacity to accomplish it on his own. God is not asking Joshua to be able to do this of his own volition. But what he's asking him to do is to trust him and to follow him. It's the same strength that God asks for us today. It's not that we need to find an internal strength in ourselves, but that we need to have faith in God's strength. It's a matter of deep trust in God. This verse 5 says, Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. You know, Moses' leadership was marked by watching God lead and watching God act, right? How does Moses deliver the people from slavery in Egypt? Well, it's through God's action of bringing the plagues. How does Moses deliver the people through the Red Sea? It's not by him building a dam, but by God parting the waters. How does, God, how does Moses provide uh, the food and water that's needed for Israel in the wilderness? It's not by Moses' action, it's by God's provision of manna. How does Moses establish a national identity, national rituals, national worship, and a national civic code? It's through listening to what God says for Israel and telling the people. In fact, what's Moses' grave sin that keeps him out of the wilderness, or keeps him out of the, the promised land and in the wilderness? It's because Moses, in one case, tried to take credit for something himself rather than assign the credit where it was due to God. In our culture, this is such an important distinction to make. Because on one hand, we have God-originating strength that we avail ourselves of, and on the other is strength that we need to find in ourselves. And the message you hear and I hear all throughout the week is, the strength is in you. Find the strength in yourself. You've got this. Uh, be army strong, right? Like, there's a ton of messages. In fact, you might just think this week as you drive around, see billboards, watch advertising, how many times are you told that the strength is in you or you need to find strength in yourself? Yet the biblical message is very different. You know, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Psalm 73.26 says, my heart and flesh may fail. <laughs> How's that for finding strength in yourself? My heart and flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You and I are going to be strong insofar as we find our strength in God. Now, we all have strength in this world that may last for a season, it may last for a moment, but eventually all our human strength will waste away. There will be the time that we're not well-read and we're not mentally strong. There will be the time that our emotions overtake us and we say foolish and do foolish things. 
There are always resources that we don't have to accomplish goals that we had set out for ourselves. Our physical strength will fail all of us eventually. Our strength will waste away. And if it's based in ourselves, that will be the end and bitterness of our life. But if our strength is found in God, then our strength lasts literally forever. Well, practically, how does this help you in your life? How do you live out of the strength of God? Some of you are in recovery, and this is a message you talk about a lot, that your strength is not in yourself, that by yourself you can't be sober, but that you have to find your strength in God. And that's a good message for us, whether we're recovering from addiction to alcohol, pornography, gossip, anger, or any other sin. Similarly, some of you guys who are Stephen ministers, who minister to others in our, in our lay counseling ministry, you repeat to yourself and are reminded that you're not the caregiver. You know, no matter how much you want to help the person you're meeting with, be able to work through this grief, that it's not in you to help them, right? That God is the caregiver, that you're just the caregiver, that your strength comes not from inside you, but from God. Some of you are trying to make decisions about your future, and you're trying to have strength that you don't have to decide what to do next. And rather than using your own compass, I encourage you to find their strength in God's word and his direction for you. For Joshua, his strength and courage meant that he needed to drive out a superior military power from the promised land. And yet he had no ability to do this on his own. Remember, how did Joshua become famous in the book of Numbers? He and another guy named Caleb were the only two of the 12 spies who, when they went to the promised land, trusted that God could deliver them. Uh, deliver the superior military people into their hands. The rest of the spies, from a human perspective, were right. They went and they saw the Canaanites and they said, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. These people have superior military power, superior physical strength, superior ability to defend what they already have. There's no human way we can do this. And Joshua and Caleb became famous in Israel for having a trust not in their own strength, but in God's strength. And now it's Joshua's Uh, time to lead Israel in that period of strength and faith that God will deliver this land into their hands. All right. Well, you might respond to this point like, wait, wait, what do you mean deliver the land into their hands? You mean murder a bunch of people, right? In fact, Joshua, a lot of people kind of get uncomfortable talking about this book because it seems like such a graphic and violent book of the Bible. Sometimes uh, either well-meaning or sort of uh, scoffing people, will take Joshua as an example that we can't take either God seriously or the Old Testament seriously. They'll say, how on earth can you worship a God that is so genocidal that he would have Israel come in and wipe out a whole people? Isn't that grossly unfair? And isn't, aren't passages like this, books like this, just excuses for stuff like the Crusades and Jihad today? Like, holy wars have wrecked uh, human history And you're saying that we should do stuff like that? We should find strength to carry this out? This is dangerous, at least problematic. Now, if that's your objection to to some degree or not, like, I'm glad that we can talk about this. And to be honest, when I started this series, I was not looking forward to Joshua Week. I was like, how am I going to talk about this? Like, because most of the explanations I've heard in my Christian life to this is something like, well, you know, God's different now. Like, in the New Testament, like, God's way more cool. He's mellowed out. Um, like, you know, read the Sermon on the Mount, turn your cheek, all that stuff. But that, that makes it sound like we're, God's in a parole healing hearing. Like he's, he's somehow reformed himself and he's no longer like that anymore. But that's, that's unfair, that's theologically wrong, and that misunderstands and misrepresents what the Old Testament provides as value for our life. What 2 Timothy says is useful for correcting, teaching, training, and rebuking in righteousness. Like, 
this is a, Joshua's a helpful passage in our Christian life. So how is it helpful? So I, I've had a chance to read a lot on this this week and think about this a lot and talk to some other people. And I've actually come around to really delighting in the holy war that we see in Joshua. Um, not because I love warfare, like I, I really don't, um, but because I think the story that it tells is a really important one for all of us in our Christian life. And maybe more why I've, I cherish, now I'm going to talk about this with you, is because I think a lot of our objections to it are rooted in our cultural experience and our misunderstandings of the Bible. And so we sort of have a lot of hang-ups about Joshua that aren't rooted in what the Bible actually says, but based on our, our assumptions of what it says and our um, own maybe collective guilt and shame for how Western countries have treated colonialism over the last couple hundred years. So let me explain a little bit. Um, why is God's conquest of Canaan can bring you hope rather than disgust? This isn't in your notes, so that you can just sort of write this wherever you see some white space. Uh, well, first, the conquest of Canaan shows that the powerful cannot always op oppress the weak. The powerful cannot always oppress the weak. So here's, here's where I mean that our assumptions are not always in line with what the Bible says. I, I found that a lot of people, when they think about the conquest of Canaan, think of Israel as the overwhelmingly strong force, the sort of muscle-bound, machine-gun-toting people who just come in, and there are these innocent natives in Canaan, and they're like, this is our land, and they just spray them all down, <laughs> as if it's, uh, I don't know, with spears, maybe. Okay. Yeah, the thing is, they didn't have spears. They didn't have swords, right? They come into Canaan without any military resources to accomplish this. Maybe because we're Americans, for the most part, in, in our church, uh, there's this assumption that Israel must have been the people that had the capacity to carry this out on their own, because America always has the capacity to carry out its military objectives. But that wasn't the case for Israel. Canaan was a superpower, not Israel. Canaan was the one with iron chariots, not Israel. Canaan was the one with the fortified walls. Israel was the one with the slaves. This was not a, a case of the strong, muscle-bound, machine-gun-toting oppressor spraying down the locals. It was a case of the local coming up without anything and seeing the muscle-bound, machine-gun-toting oppressor laid low for a change. It's a, chance for, um, the, it's a chance for God to show that the oppressor, the stronger, does not always win in God's economy. For 400 years, Canaan has oppressed the people around him. Remember reading about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis? Ezekiel says that Sodom and Gomorrah had more than enough food and yet watched their neighbors die. Right? That was the sort of people that they were. And yet, it is the powerful ones that are now brought low after 400 years because God has fought for Israel. God is the one who has delivered them into his hand. When we read in Joshua about Jericho, we read that Israel was sent and instead of trying to attack the walls on their own power, they walk around the village, seven, or the fort, seven times and wait for the walls to come down after they blast their trumpets. This is the great tambourine offensive of military strategy. <laughs> because it's a sign that God is the one who acts. You know, sometimes the, the objection against Joshua and against violence in the Old Testament is, this is a, a problematic and dangerous paradigm for advocating for religious warfare in the future. And I say, well, okay, but only in the way that the Bible describes it. Like, if somebody wants to show up without any armor, without any military weapons, and a, and a kazoo, and wait for God to bring down judgment on someone, that's not really a dangerous precedent to set. Right? A, a lot of the religious warfare, or, or times that religion's been used as a pretext for warfare in the last couple thousand years, 
have been times when the rich have, uh, the powerful have tried to prey on the weak and use religion as an excuse. That's how humans tend to do it. But that's not what the Bible advocates. The Bible demonstrates when the weak come that God is, on, is uh, willing to uh, pull down the towers of the oppressed or uh, pull down the powers of the oppressor, not advocating that we should uh, use God as an excuse for religious warfare. Um, all right, well, our cultural differences imagine, cause us sometimes to also miss what the Bible is saying, too. You know, we, we read about um, the destruction of some of the cities in here, and we take that word city, and we assume it's like our cities, right? We assume it's like God telling people to go in and destroy the city of Seal Beach or Long Beach. And yet, that's not what cities were like in the ancient world, either. And this is, sometimes when we have problems with the Bible, it's because we're, we don't understand how our cultural differences have made things uh, different over time. So, in an agrarian culture, an agricultural context, like the one that Joshua was writing in, um, most of the people lived out in the fields where they uh, had small villages and they had their crops. And then there would be a localized city center that had fortified walls that soldiers would go into in order to defend the land when it came time to fight. And usually the people that didn't want to fight, uh, the, the very old, the very young uh, women, uh, those who are physically unable, they would flee to the hills to avoid the warfare. And all that would be left would be warriors in the town. Jericho, for example, probably held about 1,200 warriors at the most. Um, it was small enough that you could lead a whole people to walk around it seven times and still have time to fight the rest of the day. Can't really do that around Long Beach, right? So we're not, don't think of a big city. Think of a fort instead. And similarly, when it says that thousands were killed, that word thousands could also translate to units instead of, thou, instead of like a literal 10, 100 people. So in, the reason I bring that up is to say that what we see in Joshua is a story of military conquest, not by the strong over the weak, but by the weak over the strong because of God's action. It's not really reproducible in any sort of holy war sense today. It's meant to show that God is the one who brings victory over the wicked. And really, this gets to the nexus of the problem for us, or the nexus of the passage. Did Canaan deserve what happened? Let's, let's say, for example, say, say you respond to me like, Okay, Bob, let's say there were no children there, there were no innocent people there, it was only soldiers who deserved, uh, you know, they were fighting and, and that's, that's fair. But did those soldiers deserve to die? Well, let's talk about what Canaan was like. You know, we mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah earlier. Did you know Leviticus 18 lists off all the different ways that sexual abuse was, happened in Canaan? And it was repeatedly told to Israel, this is the sort of people you're going into. Make sure you never repeat the sort of sexual abuse in your own life. Similarly, um, in Deuteronomy 20, it says that the Canaanites practiced child sacrifice. They offered their children to Molech. For 400 years, the Canaanites had oppressed the weak. They had abused each other. They would be in a corrupt culture, and there was a time that judgment was going to come on them. And this is something that, uh, sort of at the core, we need to deal honestly about, the righteousness of God. That God uses Israel to bring judgment into Canaan. Now, this isn't because one culture was superior to the other. After all, Israel themselves had experienced God's judgment multiple times in the wilderness and would again multiple times in their future. In fact, all of us, according to Scripture, are going to be held to die once and then to face judgment. So we all face judgment, but what's unique in Joshua is that God uses Israel to bring that judgment into their life, to remind them of the consequences of their sin. Not because one is racially superior to the other, that's why it's not fair to call this a genocide, but in order to demonstrate the holiness of God. 
In Joshua 5, uh, Israel is about to go to battle and an angel is there. And Joshua goes to the angel and says, whose side are you on, ours or our foes? And the angel responds, neither, for I am an angel of the Lord. Right? God is not on our side. God is not on Israel's side. God is not on Canaan's side. God is not on any national identity side. He is on God's side. Abraham Lincoln responded similarly when talking about the Civil War, when he was asked who he thought uh, God was on the side of, the North or the South. And Abraham Lincoln said, it is better a question for us to ask, are we on God's side? The same thing is true for us today. For us to assume that God is on our national identity side, our political party side, our own opinion side is foolish. The question from Joshua is, are we on God's side? And when Joshua is, when Israel is, they're powerful and strong beyond any human reasoning. But when they fail to be on God's side, they're weaker than they could ever account for. Because of what God does through Joshua, they see tremendous strength that benefits others. Look at verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Joshua's strength enables him to be a blessing to generations after him. Not because it comes from him internally, not because he's stronger based on his personality, but because of his faithfulness to God. Joshua's strength impacts the people around him. It helps them to experience the blessing God had for them. And the same thing is true for you, right? The strengths that you have, whatever ways that God works through you, through the spiritual gifts he gives you, through the character he develops in you, through the way the fruit of the Spirit comes through you, that benefits all of us who are around you. Your kids, your spouse, your friends, your life group, the people you minister to at this church, we benefit from the strength that you bring to this body from God. And similarly, when you fail to do that, when you fail to be connected to the Spirit, when you fail to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, when you fail to bring out gifts of the Spirit based on your connection or lack thereof to God, we miss out on what it means to know God in a deeper way. Your strength, whatever it is, however, uh, however God expresses his fruit through you, is an opportunity for us all to see him. And when you fail in that, like, Joshua do, like Israel does at times under Joshua, um, we fail to see God. Look at verses 7 and 8, or verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, has my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Joshua can't guarantee that he'll always be strong or he'll always be successful, because he's only successful insofar as he is connected to God and that he's obedient to God. The limit of Joshua's power is whether he is following God's ways. Joshua's strength is reliant on walking with God. In Joshua 6, this comes really to a head when uh, one of the people of Israel, a man named Achan, chooses to rebel against God, chooses to disobey in secret what God has made publicly known that everyone's to obey. And as a result, people die at the Battle of Ai because, they, uh, because of one man's sin. The whole country suffers. Because it's not about one national identity being blessed, but it's about an obedience and a willingness to stay connected to God. Jesus says something similar in John chapter 15, when he says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Joshua experienced that. Apart from God, he had no strength. 
And with God, he had unparalleled strength. Same thing is true for you and I as well. As much as we're connected to Jesus, we have the capacity to do great things for him. And yet without him, we can't accomplish anything of value. So we have a choice. You have a choice. Will we be connected to God and experience the strength, the purpose, and the meaning that comes from walking with him? Or do we go on our own way, try to make it on our own power, and experience the bitterness and disappointment that comes with inevitable failure over time? We look to Jesus as our example because he is able to accomplish great things as one who is connected to the Father. He's the greater Joshua. He's the one who fulfills what Joshua points to. In fact, you know, we've said that throughout this series, but Jesus is really, in a very meaningful way, the greater Joshua, the greater Yeshua. He's, in fact, named after him. Uh, the differences of Hebrew and Greek language aside, Jesus is the namesake of Joshua because he is the one who truly saves. That's what Yeshua means. The Lord saves. And Joshua saves the people and bringing them into a time of rest, Hebrews 4 says. But it is Jesus who brings them into a greater rest, an eternal rest of life with the Father. Yes, Joshua stays connected to God, obedient to God, and follows where he leads. And yet Jesus is the greater Joshua, the one who follows his father, not just in success, but even to the point of the cross. Joshua is the one who is strong and courageous, and that's wonderful. But Jesus is the greater Joshua, and that he is strong, and that his strength shows itself even in his weakness on the cross for our benefit. Joshua destroys the Canaanites, and that's wonderful. But Jesus conquers Satan, and one day on a white horse, Revelation says, will come to conquer the final enemy, even death itself. Jesus is the greater Joshua, the one who leads us into peace and rest, even as Joshua led Israel into the peace and rest of the land. The passage concludes in verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened, don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. For you and I, uh, your strength comes from your relationship with God. He's not asking you to be strong in ways that he won't equip you to be strong. Because your strength matters to him and other people around you. Without your strength, your emotional, mental, spiritual, financial strength, people may not experience the blessing of God that, that he has for them through you. Your strength isn't a reason for you to be prideful because it doesn't rest on you. It comes from him and it comes through your obedience to connect and connection with him. And because of that, we can delight in how God blesses people through us and how you demonstrate strength to them for God. So a couple questions for you to reflect on and pray about this week. One, where do you need to be strong? If you're struggling with sort of abdicating power, you're more comfortable in weakness than in strength, where might God call you, like Joshua, to be strong and courageous? Similarly, if you tend to dwell more on the side of strength in your own power, how can you grow in turning to God for strength? Secondly, where do you need to expand your view of Jesus' strength and courage? If Jesus truly is the greater Joshua, he is the one who is strong and courageous, not weak and mild, but strong and powerful. How can you grow in your understanding of his strength and courage in your life? Uh, let's close our time in prayer. God, we are grateful for the story of Joshua. Even when it's difficult for us sometimes and we don't understand it, we trust that you are good. And uh, even when things seem uncomfortable or painful, um, God, we trust that your word is good and helpful for us. God, I pray for my friends here um, as, they, uh, as they walk with you this week. May you give them strength that comes from you. May you give them humility insofar as they try to operate away from you. 
And may you bless them with an opportunity to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.